Next Sunday, we'll have a special treat. It's going to be Hymn Sunday, and Walter Santos is going to be here, the doo-wop guy, and, and leading us in hymns. So if you love the hymns, uh, you'll look forward to that. If you don't love hymns, deal with it, because <laughs> I like them. Let's turn to the book of James now. Um, James is a, it was the letter, the epistle of James was written most likely by James, who was the half-brother of Jesus. And he was one of the leaders of the early church. He hadn't believed in Jesus the whole time he grew up with them. And you can imagine why. Jesus is your big brother. People are going, why can't you be more like Jesus? And, you know, and so I'm sure that was kind of tough to grow up with. But when Jesus rose from the dead... There's no one like a guy who grew up with someone to go, I know that's you, and I see, and now I get it. And a whole lot of things began to make sense for him, and he became one of the most devoted followers of Jesus. Um, he became the head of the church there in Jerusalem very quickly. Uh, this book was written, probably one of the, maybe the earliest book that was written in the New Testament, written probably in the late 40s uh, A.D., um, by James. It's, it, it has been a controversial book some throughout history because its message in some ways seems to contradict with Paul's messages of grace. And so as a result, for instance, the Catholic Church and the Eastern Orthodox Church love the book of James because they're not real comfortable with what has been understood as salvation by grace through faith alone. They kind of like to believe, well, hey, isn't there a place for works in there? And the book of James emphasizes works and how the Christian life is supposed to work. And so as a result, there are some people who have a struggle with it. Martin Luther, who grew up as a Catholic monk, and then as he was studying the book of Romans, and it just hit him that the just shall live by faith, and he realized salvation is a gift that is free. And the only way that we can get it is by simply accepting it and it's not about what we do it's not a legalistic sort of thing changed martin luther's life and started the reformation but martin luther had a hard time with the book of james because you know he looked he he called it an epistle of straw because he was just not comfortable with with the practical nature of james whereby it has so much to say about how we're supposed to live and he knew that people could get that confused and fall into um, some sort of a, a lifestyle that would be based on works rather than on faith. But all of that confusion is just because we don't understand the relationship of faith and works. And, and here's, the, here's the problem. If there are people who are claiming to be Christians, but it doesn't work in their life, it's, their life is a complete mess, and a shambles, and there are people who are constantly angry and upset, and there are people who are, who are, you know, hate other people, and who are constantly, you know, bringing everyone down, and they seem to have no joy, and no power over sin, and they're just victims of, you know, whatever happens to them, and they go, yeah, I'm a Christian, then you got to go, really? Being a Christian doesn't do anything for you? There's no advantage. It doesn't change you. I thought you're supposed to be a, a new creature. And so the truth is, well, 
Grace is absolutely true. Salvation cannot be earned. There's nothing you do that will make you more saved. There's nothing you do that will make God love you more. There's nothing you can do that will make him love you less. However, when you really come into a relationship with him and the Holy Spirit comes inside of you, things start to change because there are things in your life that are destroying you. And he didn't die just to take you to heaven. Jesus died to actually rescue you to save you now and to do a work in your life now. And so it's important for you to know and to be able to look at your life and go, does this line up with someone who is saved, someone who has been saved? Jesus said that there will be people in the end who come and go, hey, we knew you, did miracles in your name even. you know." And Jesus said, I never knew you. And so it's not enough to know about him. It's not enough to have the right theology. It's not enough just to know a certain number of facts. And there are people today who think that becoming a Christian means there are certain points of theology that you give your mental assent to, and, and then maybe you walk forward or whatever, and then now you're saved. But salvation is so much more than that. It's so much better than that. It's something that really works in your life. Now, you don't become perfect. It doesn't mean that, man, I must not be saved because there are still areas of my life in which I'm struggling. No, that's going to go on until we get to heaven. But there are also areas of your life where God's doing great things, and it's important to see that. And it's important for people to see that when you, when you accept Jesus Christ, it really does work in your life. He really does work. And so James emphasizes that, and as a result, it can get confusing to people. But it's one of the most important books in the Bible for us as well, because it gives us real practical help as to how to live the life. Okay, I've accepted Jesus Christ. Now what do I do? And James is super practical, and, and I love the book because of that, and I think you're going to enjoy going through it. This morning, we're going to look at the first 18 verses, which is biting off a lot, but I want to do five chapters in 10 weeks. But really, the more I studied the book, this 18 verses goes together very critically, and so I wouldn't really want to leave out any of it. It looks like on the surface to be a lot of disjointed sort of ideas, because typically there are things in this first chapter that people use and quote out of context, but it's important to get it within context, because sandwiched in here are some just vitally important truths for us to understand, tools that we can use to live the Christian life. Now, it begins by saying, James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, doesn't call himself an apostle, doesn't want to brag, and he doesn't call himself the brother of Jesus either. He didn't want to cash in on that, you know, play the, you know, the family card in order to be especially recognized. He seems sensitive to not want to act like that. In fact, he only mentions Jesus here, and in the first verse of chapter 2, he doesn't want to go there. He's delivering truth that God has for them. But he says he's writing to the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad. Greetings. So he's addressing himself to the Jewish believers who were scattered all over the place. And this would be distributed from Jew to Jew, those who had accepted Jesus Christ but were from a Jewish heritage. He understood that. He grew up in Judaism. He was pastoring there in Jerusalem 
at the center of Jewish life. And so this is where he's addressing his comments primarily, but they apply to all of us as well. Now he begins the section by saying, My brethren, verse 2, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Now that is something that we're familiar with, but it's really hard to figure out how to do it. And I think that here in these verses, he shows us how to do it. The center of the passage, and the thing that I think he wants us to understand more than anything, comes in verses 17 and 18. So we'll skip over there, and then we'll go back through the passage. Here's the bottom line. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or flakiness or shadow of turning or randomness. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we might be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. So this is the summary of everything that he's trying to say. And if you don't know this, you don't know God. It's that God is good And God gives good and perfect gifts to his people. And he isn't random about it, and he isn't flaky about it, but everything he's doing is to cause us to reflect who he is and what he wants to do in people's lives. We're the first fruits of that. Now, when we talk about, and often when we quote this verse, we think of gifts as being things that we really welcome. You know, we we tend to go, Oh yeah, you know, it was my birthday and I got several gifts, but one of them in particular was just what I wanted. Oh, what a, what a wonderful gift. Every good and perfect gift comes from God. You go out and it's a beautiful day and you go, God, thank you for the gift of this beautiful day. You get a new job, God, thank you for this great job. You meet a new friend, God, thank you. And, and we tend to consider things as being gifts based on whether or not it's something that I really wanted. But what I think we see in this passage, and this is really important for us to understand, is God is good, and everything that he does is good. And everything that he allows is good and is for our benefit. And so it's not just like sometimes you have a lucky day, oh, isn't God good? Don't think of it that way. The key is to understand that God is showering us with presence all the time. He's doing good things in our lives, and a lot of those things don't look like they're good things on the surface. In their initial iteration, it looks like tragedy has hit. The economy, the political world, your own economics, your family members, friends, and all sorts of things that surprise you and disappoint you and let you down. Key to living the Christian life is realizing that none of that stuff is bad things because God doesn't do that. He only gives good gifts and he brings into our lives everything that is allowed to come into our life. And so somehow James wants to to convince us that you are getting a lot more gifts from God than you realize. And in discovering what those gifts are, then you are able to rejoice when things don't go your way and you find yourself in a time of trial. And I think you would agree with me, if there's a way that we could grow so that when something bad happens to us, when something happens that we don't like, that isn't comfortable, that's difficult, 
that we can find a way to rejoice, not just in spite of it, but to actually see this as something good, what a powerful transformation our lives would go through if that would be the case. So let's go back up again to verse 2. Count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. So he says, it's a good thing when you come into something that you didn't plan, something that puts you out, something that is difficult, because patience comes from that. Now, first of all, trials and joy don't usually go together for us. Although, in one of the discussion questions to talk about in a group is, there are times when we see a trial and a joy being a good thing. Now, if you, for instance, if you're on a college basketball team and you go through the whole March Madness deal and now you are coming to the greatest test of your life when you are facing up against the best basketball players who stayed in college and didn't go to the NBA, so the best of the worst, but <laughs> now it's an opportunity for you to be tested and your blood pressure is going up and your heart's beating faster, but it's a good kind of stress because there you are in the finals. And that's huge. Now, maybe some of you are the kind of student where you didn't look forward to tests, but once in a while you'd go and they'd pass out the test and you looked at it and you go, I can't believe it, I studied exactly the right things. Now, you've had plenty of days when that wasn't the case, but there's nothing more exciting than having a test where you just look at it and you go, I know the answers to this. This is cool. Now, most people, when they're going to court, it's not an exciting time. And precisely because when you're going to court, you don't know how it's going to come out. You can be as prepared as possible. I mean, you can go, I know I'm innocent. I know I'm right. I know right's going to prevail. And yet there you are in a courtroom with your fate in the hands of 12 people who are too stupid to get out of jury duty. And you're just going, I don't know what's going to happen. A friend of mine who's since gone to be with the Lord, but he was the president of the Bar Association, brilliant lawyer. I said, I said Vern, when you go to court and you know you're right 100%, what are the chances that you'll win? And he said about 50-50. <laughs> so... That's the way most of us feel about our lives. It's kind of out of our hands, and really, we don't like trials. Like most lawyers, we would rather negotiate our way out of it and minimize the damage. Because nobody likes to do, go into something that they don't know how it turns out. But our lives are full of those kinds of situations where we can't plea bargain, where we can't avoid it, where we can't hold back. It's like, no, you're going to have to go through this. But... What James says here is, you should be excited because this is how you get patience. Now, that's hard to buy. I mean, is it that great to be patient? Is, it, is just learning to take it something that's that joy-inducing? Something that, that's, that is that wonderful? Well, he goes on to say, but let patience have its perfect work, verse 4, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Now it starts to sound good. Trials, tests bring patience. Patience makes you complete, mature, perfect in every way. So now 
what James is saying is, these are opportunities for you to become better at everything you do. And when you think about patience, would patience make you a better father or mother? Of course. Would patience make you a better employee in your business? Definitely. Would patience make you a better investor? Would patience make you more creative? Would patience, in any area of your life, patience would make you a better musician? Patience would make you a better friend? Patience would would do radical things for you in every area of life. Ultimately, God is trying to make you a better version of who you are. And these trials are designed to, to work that in us to make us more complete, to help us to grow up. We are all seriously damaged by being in this world. And the things you experience in life, combined with the sin that we inherited from our parents, cause us to just do and say dumb things and to destroy ourselves, to be deteriorating. And as we get older, you feel that deterioration kicking in more and more, and you just go... I don't like this because this is a new test. Skills that you've always depended on, they're just not quite there. Last week um, at the Good Friday service, there was a guy who was supposed to sing a special number. And Pastor Chuck, who's 82, almost 83, forgot to have the guy come up and, and sing his song. And I felt really bad for the guy because like, he's practiced and he's all ready for it and everything. And uh, then the same guy was supposed to sing at the sunrise service. And again, Chuck forgot and didn't, and they let him like get up there and sing it at the end when people are walking out and stuff. And I just thought, oh, poor Chuck, I feel so bad for the old guy. And then third service here, the people who were supposed to do special music, I forgot. <laughs> and I just went into my message, and they like, mm, you know, and I didn't know about it until they talked to me later, and they were great sports about it, by the way. But I started thinking, I was feeling sorry for an 82-year-old dude. <laughs> Boy, God has a funny way of calling us on some of this arrogance. But patience is fixing you. Therefore, trials which teach you patience is making you better, is repairing what's damaged in your life. But if we accept that as a concept, it still would help if we had insight. Now, you know, if you're going to have surgery that you know is going to improve your life, you probably actually look forward to it, even though you're dreading the anesthesia or dreading the recuperation or whatever. If you have been hobbled by a bad knee for years, and there's so many things that you just can't do, and now you find out you have a great surgeon, and insurance will cover it, and they have this cool new knee that's just going to, you're going to get your life back when you get that knee put in there. And you have friends who get the surgery, and they like, it's a piece of cake, I'm telling you, you're gonna, your life is going to turn around. Well, you're going to look forward to it, even though the guy's going to be hacking into your leg and pulling out parts that you've become very attached to for your whole life. <laughs> and putting in artificial stuff, but you're just going, no, I get it, I, I know what's happening, and so I'm excited to finally get this done. It's about, I should have done it sooner. It's about time. Well, when God, the great physician, is working in our lives, will we give him that benefit of the doubt? And will we say, this is kind of creepy, but 
I know you're working your good gifts in my life. Now, in order to get that insight, it helps for God to show us and for us to have wisdom. And that's why the next verse is where it is. Now, you've heard this verse quoted out of context a lot. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. Now, giving liberally doesn't mean he takes it from you and gives it to someone else. Um, I can understand why you might think that. But it's that God is generous. And it, but he says, if you lack wisdom. Now, this is true in general, and so you don't have to take that out of your memory card and go, oh, I thought it meant wisdom in any area. But here in the context, what he's talking about is God's working in your life, and there's a trial. And he's trying to teach you patience to make you a better person. Now, how do you get insight into exactly what he's doing? How do you, how do you know and go, I see, I get it, I understand why this is happening? Well, that's where prayer comes in. And he says, if you need wisdom, if you lack wisdom, if there are trials in your life and you go, okay, okay, it's for my good, I'm going to learn patience, but I'm not getting more patient and I'm not, got, not getting any better, I'm getting angry. Then he goes, why don't you ask God? Because there are things that he wants to do in your life and things that he wants to show you usually about you. The truth is, whenever I'm going through a trial, oh, it may be because somebody's just trying to hurt me. It may be because the economy crashed. It may be because there's downsizing in my industry. It may, there are all kinds of, of evil things that can cause you to be in a trial. But ultimately, God's hand is in that, and it's about you. It's about God extracting from you things that are holding you back taking away from you and even sacrificing some good things so that you can become more successful, more the person he wants you to be, more representative of him, more like him. And his patience happens as we pray and go, okay, God, what's going on here? What's happening here? So when I'm in a trial, I want to go, okay, God is going to do something in me. So I'll get my eyes off whatever's happening out there that's causing me stress and I'm going to go, God, how is this about me? Can you give me wisdom? Can you give me insight into what you're doing? And he will generously show you things about yourself that you don't even want to know. Why is it that certain things upset you so much? Well, dig in there a little bit, and, and God will show you if you ask him. And it's really good that you discovered what it is that's inside of you that's causing this why is this upsetting me? Well, God's going to show me something about me. Over in Psalm 139, where the psalmist says, you know, God searched me and known me and all that. And then he ends up by saying, so search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties. See if there's any wicked way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. <clears throat> if God is poking you, if he's taking things away from you, if he's cutting you open, it's because there's something in there that needs to come out. And so we get that insight into what God's doing, and we actually cooperate with the process when we go, okay, God, why did this bug me so much? Why am I so stressed about this? What is it about me that you want to work on? 
And then he goes and says, but let him, in verse 6, ask in faith with no doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Ask him for wisdom if you're double-minded. Literally, the word is double-souled, two psyches. It's like, I'm torn. What this is about is saying, okay, God, you brought this into my life. You're doing something in my life. Can you, can you tell me what you're doing so I can decide whether or not I really want you to do this work or not? God, I, I want whatever you want, except don't take this or this or this away. God, I want you to work, but I wish you would also punish those people that are causing me this trial. I don't want them to be blessed through me being helped. That's not fair. And, and so all of these things that cause us to be, and, and sometimes it's like we go, okay, God, please show me your will so I can decide whether I want to do it. No, it's, the question is, if God tells you something, will you take it? And will you run with it? Will you do what he is calling you to do if he shows you? Because he's not going to waste his time. He says, the person who's tossed back and forth and flaky is not going to get anything from God. He's not going to tell you so that you can approve or not. He wants to know that you will let him do whatever he can do. That's what faith is. Okay, God, whatever you show me to do, it's okay. Whatever reason why you're working in my life through this trial it's cool with me. I'm ready. I'm excited about it because I know you love me and I know what you're doing and I have that faith in you. So he says, ask for the wisdom and you'll get it. But ask it intending to go along with what God wants, giving him tacit approval to say, God, what you're doing is okay with me. I want to be helpful. I want to be a part of this. And then he goes ahead, and it seems kind of disconnected. He says, let the lowly brother glory in his exaltation. How do you do that? But the rich in his humiliation. Pretty rare, too. Because as a flower of the field, he will pass away. For no sooner has the sun risen with a burning heat than it withers the grass, its flower falls, and its beautiful appearance perishes. So the rich man also will fade away in his pursuits. So in the context, remember, he's talking about trials that come. And he's saying, some of them will come to lowly people. Some of them will come to wealthy people. He said, if you don't have much, then you need to, re you need to exalt. You need to rejoice in even what you don't have. Because there are good things about ha not having much. <laughs> There's less trial, ultimately. Because when you, when you ain't got nothing, you got nothing to lose. And so he says, if you think you don't have anything, how about noticing what you do have? Because what you have, what God has given you and what he's going to give you is better than anything that you could collect on this earth because the riches on this earth, they just blow away. They fade away. They come and they go. They're not worth living for. So if you don't have much, don't live your life to want a bunch more, to want to be like somebody else, to keep up with somebody else. And, and so often our trials are just that. Oh no, my dreams were shattered again because I thought I was finally going to get ahead. 
I thought I was going to get out of debt, and now this happened. He's going, no, if you don't have much, there are some good things to be said for that. You have less to lose. But he said, for the rich people, don't be hanging on to, clutching to what you have. That stuff, easy come, easy go. Maybe hard come, easy go. But the truth is, that's not what's going to last. That isn't what defines you. You don't become a worthless person because you don't have stuff. And you don't become a valuable person because you have stuff. That's not what it's about at all. Don't let what you have or don't have determine how you assess whether or not God has been good to you. Don't judge God's goodness based on that. And so he has gifted all of us. We're all on an even playing field. We all have what God wants us to have. And it's all gifts from him. So he says, get off this notion that, oh no, my net worth went down, therefore uh, I'm stressed. Your net worth has nothing to do with what you have. Your net worth is so much more than any financial wealth or material wealth that anyone has on this earth. So he says, just don't measure it that way, because if you do, you're going to be completely overrun by trials. But now he goes on to say, happy is the man, verse 12, blessed is the man who endures temptation, for when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. The Bible talks about a lot of crowns, and Paul usually uses the term crown referring to the awards that you get at a, at a Greek athletic event um, or a Roman athletic event. Um, it's questionable as to whether that's what James is talking about because in the Jewish mind, writing to Jews from Jerusalem, Jews just weren't that into competitive sports. And they still aren't that into, you know, you have isolated things, but usually Jews are out inventing things, creating things. Yeah, you got Sandy Koufax pitched for the Dodgers, Jordan Farmar, pretty decent reserve for the Lakers, but most Jews aren't into that. And what a lot of commentators believe that when he's saying you get the crown of life, it's not an award. It's actually saying you get life. What you get is everything that God wants for you when you go through this experience. But either way, whatever it means, he's saying good things come when you do that. But now he says, let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires or lusts and enticed. Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Don't be deceived, my beloved brethren. Now, how does this tie in with the flow of it? He's saying this. He says, don't think that God does bad things to you. Don't blame God because you're in a, in a stressful situation. Don't think that God wanted it to be the way that it is. He doesn't. Again, he goes on to say, God gives good and perfect gifts. So you go, well, then why am I in this painful situation that I'm supposed to rejoice in? And here's the thing. He says, here's how temptation and testing works. It becomes a test based on how you react to what happens to you. Now, if a little one-year-old kid comes up to you and is goofing around and throws a punch and hits you, 
you're not going to haul off and nail the kid. You know, he's got to learn sometime. You don't punch people, you know. Put cuffs on them, throw them down on the ground. You know, you just don't do that. If an adult comes up and throws a punch at you, you're going to react probably differently. Why? Because they're, you're vulnerable in some way to their punch. But we define what is a threatening situation based on how we are responding to what someone else is doing. He said, God isn't the one who puts you into a difficulty. Every situation that you're in, if you have the wisdom to understand it, it's not that difficult. It's not some great temptation. He said, temptation comes about because of your, in the Greek, epithumia. You're breathing hard. You're biologically reacting to what's happening. That's what makes it a temptation. So he says, God didn't do that. God brings a situation into your life, and it's your own desire that kicks it up a notch to where now it feels like a temptation, a test, a painful situation. He goes, it doesn't have to be that way. It's not that way. The truth is what God is doing is doing something to you for your good, a gift for you, because there are things inside of you, desires that you have, habits and reactions that you have, ways in which you've come accustomed to dealing with people. And those things are deadly because those things, if they're allowed to stay inside of you, that's what causes you to sin. And sin is what's killing you. It's ruining your life. And so he said, God brings a situation, that's a gift. You begin to respond to it and it's difficult, that's too, that too is a gift. Because now we've begun to isolate an area of your life in which God wants to work. We have found something that you didn't know was there. And you are surprised that what's happened is hurting you as much as it has. And you are surprised at some of your reactions to it. And now he says, whatever the situation, you have to take your eyes off whoever it is that you think is doing this to you and realizing that in reality, I mean, they could be just trying to hurt you. It's as simple as that. There are a lot of people in this world that just from their flesh or their selfishness or whatever, they just like to wound people. Um, there aren't tons of people that do that, but there are some. Other times people are weak and hurt people, hurt people, and it just happens like that. He's not justifying that. Kind of like Joseph when his brother sold him into slavery and later when he talked to them and he said, you meant it for evil, God meant it for good. What James is doing is, let's get down to what God wants to do in this. So forget about what happened to you. Forget about setting the blame on what brought this pain, setting the blame on what brought this loss. Forget about that. God's doing something in you. So will you subject yourself to him? Will you pray for wisdom? Will you try to manifest patience? Will you respond the way that he wants you to respond? And will you discover what's wrong in you that causes this to hurt so much? that causes this to bring the pain. Because when it starts to hurt in the test, that's an opportunity for God to expose something that you didn't even realize you had. Pain is a great gift. If you have something growing inside your body that's destructive to you and it never hurt, 
you probably wouldn't do anything about it. You might get a big, huge lump, but you're like, man, it feels fine. Well, at least that's the way I am. But if it starts to hurt, you go, maybe this is something that needs to get worked on. And so what James is saying is, if it hurts, it's not hurting because of God. It's hurting because of something in you. And God is giving you this gift of divine surgery so that he can get down to the source so that you can learn something about you that you didn't realize. So that God can do a work in your life and through his patient work, then you begin to discover, wow, God only wants to make me better at everything I do. God only wants to make me more like what will cause my life to be blessed and fulfilled and happy. And when we begin to discover that, and when we look on the trials of life as being every good and perfect gift is from above, and it comes down from the Father of lights, and he's not a flake, and he's not random, but he brought forth by the word of truth to us so that we would be first fruits of his creatures. And when you end there and you go through that process, you begin to learn a temptation, a trial, a painful experience could be the best thing that ever happened to me if I see it for what it really is in God's economy. Now, yeah, that guy cut me off on the road. I don't have a warm feeling for him. But for him, I go, Father, forgive him, for he knows not what he does. But God, it's interesting that when he cut me off, I wanted to run him off the road. I wanted to catch up to him and cut him off, beat him up. Why did a guy cutting in front of me affect me that way? God, what is it in me that I have such a short fuse? Or why am I so vulnerable that when someone just says something, I just think about it for weeks and I stew on it and it hurts me so bad and I wonder, do I have a friend in the world? Does anyone care about me? Is it, Why is that, God? And God begins to show me. There's some stuff in you that I want to weed out. And ultimately, it's going to make you stronger. Ultimately, it's going to make you happier. Ultimately, it's going to make you better at everything that you do because it's what is inside of you that's been destroying you. And so when I understand this process... Then I get to a trial, I get to a test, and before I even ask for wisdom, I go, cool, this is exactly what James was talking about. This is exactly what we were talking about in church on Sunday. Here is an opportunity. Get my mind off whatever is causing the stress and get my mind on myself and the Lord, and I'm praying for insight from Him, and I'm going, God, if this is what's going to bring out a better result in my life, if this is what's going to make my life work better, then bring it on. That's great. And if we don't understand that, nothing else in the Christian life will make sense. If we don't understand that, the rest of the stuff in the book of James is just going to make us feel guilty. Oh, I'm not doing that. I'm not doing that. I'm not doing that. But remember, this is the setup. This is it. That testings come as a gift from God and when we are reacting poorly, it's because there's something in us that he wants to change. Because that's what's really killing us. And so when we begin to see that and rejoice that we're having an opportunity to learn something new about ourselves, to have a little more surgery, and we go, 
God, I know you're good. But it all hinges on <clears throat> whether you not, or not you believe that God is good and that everything that he gives us is perfect and that he's doing it constantly. If you don't know that, then you're not going to expect him to do it. And then you're going to be flaky and God's not going to answer your prayers. He's not going to give you more insight. But that faith that trusts that he is a good God can cause us to, to smile and rejoice even when it hurts because we know, boy, this hurts really bad. This is going to be a good gift. This is going to be something that I desperately need. And so that's it. That's what James is saying as he introduces the book. And, and I believe that if we understand this, it'll radically change our lives in just so many amazing ways. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the work that you do on us. Sorry about all the times that the work that you're doing that you give us as actual gifts, and we keep giving it back to you as prayer requests, asking you to stop doing it. Lord, help us instead to, by faith, receive everything as being from your hand and know that there are great things that you want to do for us when life hurts. Give us that faith and that wisdom to work our way through those things and come out rejoicing and praising you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand. Um, if you're here today and you've never...